are listening to the Inspired Minds Podcast. My name is Jeff Watson. I am indeed your gracious and your grateful host. How you doing today, this evening, this morning, 4 a.m., wherever you may be, I am doing well as usual. Thank you for asking. Try and keep that perspective in my head at all times. I have a fun little thing coming up. That is on December 23rd, two days before Christmas, 12 years ago, in 2010, I stopped drinking. Why? Because I was an alcoholic. <laughs> Turns out that if I have one, I have 10. I don't stop. I went to the wall. I would drink a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka like it was a fresh spring water bottle, tiny little bottle of water. I just gulped that stuff right up. And... As they often say in the recovery world, it worked until it didn't, and boy, did it not work. Right before December 23rd, 2010, um, I actually ended up going to rehab not once, but twice within a period of six months span, ladies and gentlemen. First time, didn't take, obviously. Second time, did. For whatever reason, I was ready to be done. So, I can't believe it's been 12 fucking years since I've had a drink. Absolutely bananas. It's absolutely doable. I talk about this a lot because I really do think it's important to show that it can be done. It, it was not that easy, but it was a, a great experience. It got me to look at myself and some dark corners that I didn't want to look at, and I did. And it was very helpful. I, do, I use a lot of therapy, and I used a particular 12-step program that many are familiar with. It rhymes with Malcoholics Anonymous, so... Um, I met a lot of great people in the rooms. I met a lot of wonderful people. I'm not necessarily saying it's the one-size-fits-all, but it certainly helped me. And, uh, yeah, if I didn't uh, get sober when I did, I certainly wouldn't have been here because it was two years after my wife had died that I got... Uh, I'd been sober for two years after my wife died, and had I not been sober during that experience, I think it would have been a completely different story. But... Through a few miracles, I am standing here and sober. And why do I bring this up? Because this next interviewee was uh, with a woman named Dr. Peg O'Connor. And Dr. Peg O'Connor, she's a professor of philosophy at this college in uh, Minnesota. And she's also a recovering alcoholic. She got 35 years. I got 12. That ain't a lot compared to this lady. And she also has written a book called Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. And I really enjoyed this conversation because not only is she obviously a philosophical, brilliant woman, philosophical, she's smart, but uh, in the recovery world as well, these are kind of my topics, uh, especially philosophy well, and recovery as well. So she and I got along fantastically. I really enjoyed this conversation specifically because the intersection between recovery and philosophy. Turns out is this guy named William James, who was, uh, he was a philosopher back in the uh, late 1800s. And I know this sounds all incredibly boring, but it wasn't. And this lady's such a badass that she's also a black belt in Taekwondo. This wonderful woman, <laughs> black belt, and a tennis pro, for God's sakes, or was a, close to a tennis pro, let's say. Anyway, with that in mind, I truly hope that you enjoy this as much as I did making it. And honestly, if you're out there, you're having some problems with uh, drugs or alcohol, your life can get better. It's going to get different. I can only promise you that. It's going to get different. But you're going to open up to a new world that you've never seen before. That's all I got. And I hope you truly 
truly have a wonderful day, evening, night, 4 a.m., wherever you are. Bye. All right, everybody of the Inspired Minds podcast, you lovely dazzled throng, please welcome the incredible and talented Ms. Dr. Peg O'Connor. Now, now I'm not going to say doctor anymore. I will say Peg O'Connor from going on. Peg O'Connor, please say hello to the Inspired Mind audience. Hello, Inspired Mind audience. I'm glad to be here. Beautifully done. The first question that I like to ask every single one of my interviewees, it's always the same question, and it goes like this. When you were young, what was the first thing that you can recall, that you can remember, that truly inspired you, that lit you up? Was it a song? Was it a book? Was it a movie, a person, a poem? Go. Billie Jean King playing Bobby Riggs in the Battle of the Sexes. Best answer I've ever heard so far. Tell me why. Easy no-brainer, because I was a tennis player, I was a good athlete, and I wasn't allowed to play on boys' teams, and Billie Jean King was my hero. I loved her game. I still do. I modeled my backhand volley after hers, have a one-handed backhand, and she has done more for women, in particular women professional athletes, than any other person that comes to my mind. So Billie Jean King, Bobby Riggs, and then when they both guest starred on The Odd Couple Show. They did? They did. I did not know that. I will say this, actually, from the Billie Jean King thing, because I'm 52, which probably would have put me at like, was that 70, when was that, 76 maybe? Was it 73? I can't remember. Either way, right. So either way, I was a little bit too young to remember it. But I do remember the, uh, for some reason, in the back of my craw, it did kind of stick out to me, like, a woman playing tennis, this is cool. So thank God I wasn't that guy who was like, this is wrong. And I th- if I'm not mistaken, that was kind of that was a really big flashpoint for feminism, correct? Or one of them? It was a flash. It was a flashpoint for feminism. But what gets left in the history is the fact that Margaret Court Smith played Bobby Riggs first, and she Bobby Riggs gave her a drubbing. And so by the time that Billie Jean was coming up to play, she knew that all the weight was on her shoulders because one woman had already lost. And so she took the match really, really seriously. And Bobby Riggs was older and he was a showman. I mean, he was an entertainer extraordinaire, but she prepped hard for that match and she played incredible tennis. And the part of the story that I love too, is that they became very close until Bobby Riggs died. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, Billie Jean King's new memoir is just absolutely wonderful if readers haven't had a chance to to enjoy it. The, I'm blanking on the title right now, but it, it came out within the last year. Wonderfully done. That's incredible. Okay, so here's the second part of the question. This is the follow-up. This is the CNN reporter follow-up. It is, how did that get you to where you are now? Hard work, a lot of practice, and trying to have fun at doing something that I love. So I became a serious tennis player when I was a kid. And I loved the game, but it was also a source of my own torture. Um, And my tennis career is closely linked with my drinking career. So it's a very complicated story where at my worst, every shot, every point, every game, every set, every match became a referendum on my worth as a person. And it's only as an adult that I have really come to love and have fun playing a game that I've been now playing for 47 years. Wow. So for me, it's a kind of 
it's a tenacity. I felt like I had to reclaim the game and, and also find it anew and find myself as a player anew. And I have the marvelous good fortune to play with wonderful tennis players who are spectacular people. And I play regular doubles with someone who is 92 and he's out there giving it his all highly competitive. And I still learn by watching him, by playing with him. And then, you know, heaven forbid when I play against him and he's got some nasty drop shots and angles, it's like, watch me run. So it's one of those lifetime games. I know they always say that, but that has been so foundational to who I am as a person and how I'm in the world. Yeah. It's going to be obviously the, the tennis now becomes a metaphor for your life that you're using it as I imagine. And that that tenacity then kind of carried you through to your current tenacity in 35 years of sobriety and being a, being a teacher at a giant college and, and writing books and, 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 is that fair to say? I, I think it is fair to say, but what also is in there is, there are so many people who are better tennis players than I am. And I no longer kind of set myself worth by comparing to others. For me, I want to compare myself to how am I a player now? Am I still having fun? Am I the gracious player on the court? I never want to be that person that no one ever wants to play with. Not John McEnroe. No John McEnroe. No John McEnroe. Although I got to say, he, he, he had the best volleys in town. I, what I wouldn't <laughs> give for his hand skill. Right. But that's a, I mean, I'm assuming this is where you're heading, at least that the the the, uh, the tennis court can also be a metaphor for life, like many other sports people say. No? Yeah, I, I, I think that is true. And, you know, the only thing that I can control is my attitude. I can't control if someone is playing better than I am. I can't control the wind. I can't control so many other factors. What's in my control is my attitude and my effort. And if I just focus on those two things... I, I won't win every match and I'm fine not winning every match. I would rather lose with grace than win ugly. I would rather lose with grace and win ugly. Beautiful. I love that. And that actually, that is perhaps a good segue into really what I want to talk about. Now you've, you have, you obviously, you're what they call a polymath. I know you know this. And the way I like to describe polymaths, I've done this many times in the show, is simply people who do a lot of shit. That's my opinion of what polymath is. Could be a little bit wrong about okay. that. If that's your definition, then yes. I mean, what I would say is my my training is kind of narrow as an academic field, but I hope I have good broad life experience. Well, you certainly do. And that's where I want to head with this, because um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, before, as we were talking, that I am uh, I have not had a drink in 12, actually, no, coming up on 12 years, which is a shocker for anybody that knew me back then. I was quite the professional drinker. <laughs> My goodness. And uh and it all came it just came it just came to a stop in December 23rd, 2010 and here I am now. And it's an integral part of my life. And this is kind of what I went ahead with I guess the majority of this conversation because it's a lot of the stuff that you've worked on and written about is that world of recovery. And there's so many great things and this is kind of why I want to start off with this is because you're a professor of philosophy. At at, uh, at am I pronouncing this right, Gustavus Adolphus College? That's close enough. Yes. Oh, what is it exactly? I thought I had it. Tell me again. Well, I, I think Gustavus would be more correct, but we say Gustavus Adolphus. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll work with that. Whatever. It's small, small detail. It's, uh, it's a nice little college in South Central Minnesota. Oh, uh, you, you oh you even said Minnesota. How people say Minnesota, Minnesota. Well, the natives might say it that way, but I'm a transplant, so I dare not say it that way. Oh, sorry. 
<laughs> Never mind. That so you're 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 in recovery uh, for what thirty five years is what I'm reading. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, thirty five years as of August first. Yeah, congratulations, long time. giant giant stuff. And so you've written um, you've written so much uh, on this topic: life in the rocks, finding meaning in addiction and recovery. Um, but you just put out one that I absolutely do really do want to talk about. Excuse me. Uh, higher, uh, higher and friendly powers transforming addiction and suffering, which just came out last month. No, it uh, end of August it came out, so I guess a month and a half. Month and a half. But very new, very new indeed. Hopefully, you went out for a drink to celebrate. So, the <laughs> it's, it's an old joke. I use it all the time. So bad. Um, but as a philosophy student, this is where I want to go. As a philosophy student, let's. I want to talk about how philosophy informs sobriety. And specifically, your book is a lot about William James, the philosopher. And I know barely anything about William James, but I had did some did do some research on him. And he's got those five stages of world sickness: joy mm-hmm. chilled, joy destroyed, um, and he. I can never pronounce this. Anhodia, anhodia. How do you pronounce anhedonia. it? Anhedonia. Anhedonia, active anguish and panic fear, as forms of suffering. I, I know this is like high topic stuff, but I'm really curious about how William James influenced. Your or the or a model of sobriety, what the higher power looks like. Go. Well, yeah, go. Thanks for that question. So, people in AA might recognize the name William James because he pops up in the second appendix of Alcoholics Anonymous or the Big Book, and that Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob regarded William James as a co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, even though he had died in 1910. So I get curious, like, what's the connection there? What what does this have to do with anything? So the story is this. So Bill Wilson, late in 1934, heads off to the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City. It was an asylum for the inebriate, to use the terms of the time. And he wanted to dry out and try to sober up again. And he had tried repeatedly and failed repeatedly to get sober. So this time there he was. And... Um, he's very defiant, Bill Wilson is, if you've read any about him, you know, during this phase before he sobered up. And in effect, he's, you know, kind of being like a bull in a china (laughs) shop yelling, you know, if there's a God, let him show himself. I'm ready to do anything. Uh And he has this experience where suddenly he, you know, there's this light and there's this gust of, he knows it's not wind, but it's spirit. And he says, and my desire to, to drink was suddenly lifted. So that euphoria, though, is followed by a quick crash of, oh, my, am I hallucinating? What is going on here? Am I going crazy? Hmm. So thankfully, he had a very good friend, Ebby Thacker, who had also stopped drinking and had been studying in the Oxford group, the philosopher Hmm. William James, who had given a series of lectures that became published as The Varieties of Religious Experience. That was published in 1902. And in that book, Bill Wilson encountered people who had experiences like he did, those sudden conversions where it seems as if there's some kind of excursion that there or incursion, I should say, an incursion from a God who suddenly changes you entirely. And so from that, Bill Wilson plucked the term higher power. And then when he wrote the 12 steps, and it's pretty clear from scholarship that Bill Wilson drove the entire bus on the founding of AA and certainly the writing of Alcoholics Anonymous. So he plucked that term higher power from William James and equated it with a very 
providential Christian God who has a plan for us. And our job is to kind of sit down, shut up, get out of the way and turn our will over to that God. And that God is going to remove all of our defects of characters. And so I was trained as a philosopher and I thought, well, huh, that's kind of interesting because I knew that William James was what we in philosophy called a pluralist, someone who believed in perhaps multiple realities or believed in multiple kinds of ways to understand how the universe, the cosmos is organized and multiple perspectives on everything. So I thought this is weird. So I went to the, re- the varieties of religious experience and found that William James offered an incredible variety to, you know, grab from his title, concepts of higher and friendly powers. So the more correct reading is that there are higher and friendly powers that could be anything that a person decides for him or herself. So it could be ideals like truth and beauty. It could be, he says, enthusiasm for humanity. It could be an imminent divinity in things that we can't even describe. It could be patriotism. It could be moral principles. It could be, wait for it, a better version of your own self. Mm. So my goal in writing this book was to really, it's not so much a corrective to AA, but it's a way of saying this higher power is far more expansive and inclusive than the providential notion of God, because that keeps a lot of people from the rooms. And so I wanted to make William James relevant here today with people who are struggling with addiction and recovery or struggling with every or any other kind of suffering because William James himself struggled mightily. So he's regarded as the the founder of the academic discipline of psychology in the United States. He's founded the psychology department at Harvard and he's a wonderful companion for people who are suffering and a wonderful, I don't know, tour guide almost of how life can be different when that suffering or that angst or that deep melancholia aren't at the center of a person's existence. So I just think William James is so cool. I wanted other people to be able to experience some William James and hopefully find something useful in him. You know, that's wonderful. And, um, I, you know, it's so funny. I've read that book a billion times, perhaps, you know, I've been like, I think I did the math. I've been to like 1200 meetings or something like that. I don't, I never read the appendix because I'm just that guy. So I had no idea, but it's, but that's makes so much sense. I do want to ask actually this though, this is going from my back and back of my mind last night when I was doing some reading, but how does Carl, well, I know Carl Jung fits in a, a lot of this as well, right? Cause he was writing letters back and forth with Bill Wilson. No. Yes, he did. And and Carl Jung, as a as a as a younger psychoanalyst, met William James when he was in his older years. Um, huh. And and Jung really respected James, and, and James liked Jung a, a lot more than he liked Sigmund Freud. But I digress. <laughs> um, but but there was something in the way that William James would talk about the cosmos and the connections and, and how human, human beings are, are in the world. I mean, he's, he's got this wonderful image, you know, when he's talking about how are human beings in the world with so much more going on around us than we could possibly understand or possibly be aware of. And William James wrote a couple of times, he said, you know, I think human beings are in the universe in the same way that our, that our dogs and cats are in our homes. And, Things may be turning around them, maybe about our dogs and pets, 
but they really don't know it. There's this whole wider universe. And he said, I think that's how human beings are in the universe. And for me, I'm totally content being like a dog or cat in the universe. I don't feel the need to be able to understand everything or to have everything fit into a to a, a rational framework of, of explanation and prediction. I love that there's mystery in the cosmos. And, and I think that 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 Jung tracked along some with that, you know, the idea of a collective unconscious and, and how oh, yeah. we're shaped. Right. And William James thought that there is maybe a cosmic consciousness that each of us can reach out towards or that we may already have inside of inside of us. If only we can reach inward and get beyond all of the kinds of fence posts and hindrances and obstacles that we put in our own way. Correct. Yeah. And and, and you're kind of going into Carl Rogers territory, too. Right. A little bit there. I, I confess I don't know much there. Oh, sorry. Um, well, it's just that concept that the God is within you. Mm-hmm. Right? That's something that I'm, yeah, yeah. I am I really adhere to in terms of my own personal work and my work with my clients is, is that concept that, <clears throat> excuse me, that all those things are within you. Going back to uh, Young for a second. Fun fact, by the way, I do not get to get this side of my life out on, on the podcast. Usually it's like, here's a producer who wrote the Academy Award winning for Brokeback Mountain, or here's a person who owns all the IP for Batman. I'm loving this, by the way, just on a side note. I can get this stuff out. Well, cool for you. I love it. Are you kidding? I get to talk about Young on a con- on a podcast. No, so. but I'm getting to hear about Brokeback Mountain and Batman. So well, that, was, hey. that was great, by the way. <laughs> Diana Asana, I did an interview with her. She was a screenwriter for uh, Brokeback and the uh, producer. My God, she was amazing. But they all are. At any rate, I digress because... I want to go back to Jung. Jung, I got so interested in Jung um, when I went through this massive existential crisis uh, following, as I mentioned earlier, the suicide of my wife like eight years ago. And then I went acutely mentally ill and the whole thing. But I went through this existential crisis as as one might do. And I kind of got to this place. I really got into Jung and I really got into his um, collective unconsciousness and the archetypes and that whole world. But I really got into synchronicities. And... um, I, I'm sure you're familiar with them, of course. I, I am somewhat, yep. Right. So those synchronicities were sure, according to Jung, a causal events that uh, just happen. They're, you know, they don't line up necessarily with any causality whatsoever. And they're out of time and they're out of sequence. And, just, and then you can attach meaning to it. And when you do, then that's a synchronicity. It's basically what it is. And I experienced, I think, two of them at least. And, and they're obviously subjective, but they're really fine in the... The statistics on them have to be razor thin for the occurrence to actually happen. And, but that idea was mysticism, right? And I know that Jung was really into the, the I Ching and mysticism and the whole thing. And that's what I really kind of latched onto with him. And quite frankly, that then became my higher power, which was the mysticism of the universe and that I don't really know anything. Is that kind of what yeah, James and to be Well, that's where James was going because James was deeply concerned with mysticism, um, and and deeply concerned with psychical research. So I mean, you know, at the time in the late 1800s or you know early 1900s, that psychic research was regarded almost as legitimate as chemical or biological research. And James James was so intensely curious about everything. And mysticism, he says, mysticism oftentimes attaches to the kinds of experiences that we have that are ineffable. We feel as if we don't have the language to explain it because it is so far beyond our language that trying to use our clunky everyday words couldn't possibly capture it. 
And that mystical experiences oftentimes seem to bring about a new knowledge that you come to know something, whether that is something about the world or something about a, a you know, spirituality or divinity or something about yourself that you didn't know before. And that it's oftentimes really kind of sudden and overpowering. And what James wants to say there, though, is don't make the mistake that it's some kind of agent external to you causing that. You know, that you may be authorizing your own mystical experience in a kind of way. And how how to treat mystical experiences, how to treat them seriously, when when James was was doing much of his work, and he was trained as a physician as well. So, I mean, he was an empirical scientist. And James was always worried about the ways in which, you know, the rise of modern science and logical positivism, this sharp distinction between facts and values, the ways that the rise of modern science made mystical things or spiritual things seem like they were, um, what's the word I want? either fraudulent or fluffy or not to be taken seriously, something that we should discount. And for James, our spiritual impulses are part of our human nature. So if we kind of systematically or categorically deny or denigrate important experiences that we have, we're going to be unhappy in some very fundamental kinds of ways. Right. And that, you know, I kind of to that point, uh, I was, I was looking at some of the, uh, so the topics that you're covering in your in your new book, and this is kind of the same thing. One I pulled out that I thought was just wonderful was that your higher power is what you make it. Alternate ways to conceive of the spiritual pillar of recovery, and I want to share with you really quickly my vision of God, my own personal one. You ready? Great, bring it on. Let's see where this, let's see where this flies. So uh, I was raised evangelically for quite some time when I was about 14. Then I'm like, wait, gays are fine. I'm bouncing out. I don't get this whole thing. So I got out of the church and I became a musician and this and that. And I never really had to have a spiritual connection with God because quite frankly, I didn't need him. Or I didn't think I did. Mm-hmm. Life was fine. I went to college. I did this. I was doing this, doing this. Wife violently dies. Terrible thing. And of course, you immediately go into what everybody else does, which is why her dickhead God right? You curse the favor or like, uh, you curse the fallen, but you favor the faithful. Is that your line of logic? Then you're a capricious dickhead. I don't like that God. He's not the God that I want. So I became an atheist as one might do for quite some time. Then I started experiencing these synchronicities, which was, I can't even get into right now, but like I said, it's like eight causal events that slivers of possibilities you can attach meaning to that are completely subjective. One person can say, that's just a coincidence. And sure, maybe it is, but regardless, if you can attach the meaning to it, that's your synchronicity. I've had those experiences. They're very mystical. So as a result, I came up with what I call grandma God. Because I thought to myself, if people were, a lot of people said, you know, horrible things to me, like, well, it's all part of God's plan. And I was like, no, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Why would he use my wife as a pillar or as a, um, uh, you know, a, a, like an angel of death for a, a giant plan of some sort? It makes no sense. So I realized that if if God gave us free will, then divine intervention, at least in my head, don't work. I think they're completely, I think you just can't exist in the same room. Because if you intervene, then you deny the free will. So Grandma God comes into effect. What Grandma God is, is just a woman who, Grandma is rocking back and forth in her rocking chair. And the way I tell people, I said, for me, she's Dolly Parton. For you, it can be B. Arthur. It can be anybody you want. 
And Dolly Parton, Grandma God, has three babies in her arms, and she's rocking back and forth, and she's cooing with the babies, and she's playing with them and giving them milk. And there's two babies that are crawling away from Grandma God on the carpet. And Grandma God says, I would not go that way if I were you. You're going to poop yourself. You're going to not be able to eat. You're going to cry. There's no toys. But I have given you free will. Ergo, into it. I will be here if you need me. That, to me, is divine guidance as opposed to intervention. And that gets around the free will mm -hmm. part for me. Makes sense? Well, it makes sense. And I mean, I, I, I think that the fact that many people, if not most people, want to believe that they have the the power, they have the the freedom to choose and to act. And that isn't to say that, you know, some people have choices that are terribly, terribly constrained and that, you know, others have more choice that isn't constrained, but that you can choose to act as if your actions make a difference and they will make a difference. Correct. Can you pull on that a little more? Well, so this actually goes to William James. So William James, as a young man, struggled mightily. We didn't have the term clinical depression then. He probably would have talked about having a pathological melancholia. Huh? And he was working as a young physician, trying to figure out what to do. He was racked with guilt because two of his brothers served in the Union forces in the Civil War. And he and his other brother, Henry James, the novelist, didn't oh. serve. And and he was without a tether. He was lost. He, he had no anchor. And he became severely suicidal in the late 1870s. And how he got out of that, you know, I know they say suicidal ideation, but, you know, really being fixated on dying. Hmm. He got out of it by deciding to actively believe in free will, to actively cultivate the attitude that his choices and that his actions would matter. And so that belief in having free will helped to bring about the fact that he started to act more freely. He started to make more choices. He decided he made various kinds of decisions about what he wanted to do with his life, who he was going to marry, what kind of work he was going to undertake. And if he had stayed, stayed stuck in that kind of nothing I do will ever have any effect. I mean, that is a kind of suffering that is torturous because it has no meaning. And so, you know, I, I am sure that William James would have bumped into the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche at some point, And he would have taken from Nietzsche the fact that, you know, what distinguishes us isn't that we suffer, but it's how we can make meaning of that suffering, make it meaningful and transform it. And that's what William James had to do in order to live. And at various points in his later life where he would struggle some with some of the same issues, he had to remind himself that he had to act as if his life were worth living because that's what would make it worth living. That the meaning wasn't out there waiting to attach to his life or that he was out there to discover it. But we make meaning. We make sense. We make values. And that, again, comes back to the kind of agency that we human beings can have. But if we say, oh, there's no such thing as free will, you, you entirely shut those options down. I'm so glad you used the word meaning, because now we've cut, now we've got to the real root of things like you discuss. So as many people have, when going through some kind of a trauma, I read uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, which for those of mm -hmm. you who don't know, 
this yes. magical book. It's a terrifying read on, on, on many levels because it follows this man's autobiographies about his experiences in the concentration camps and the and, and then finding meaning however you can possibly do that within those horrific conditions. And the other half of the book is is uh, his views on local logotherapy, which means meaning in uh, Greek, I think. Regardless, it's that meaning. It's that search for a meaning. It's that search for something to complete you, to find out who you want to be and who you aspire to be and who you can be. That is a critical thing for me that I found through my own walk with my trauma. And that's what I try and embed into uh, my clients as well. So can you talk a little bit about that meaning part? That's big. Well, if, if everything were meaningless, if, if, if one thing didn't matter more than another, you lose purpose because who cares? Who would give a rip about any one particular thing over another? They'd all be on par with each other. They'd all be, you know, doesn't matter. Or, you know, I think there's no more dangerous expression that we kick around these days than, well, I don't care. If, uh-huh. if that were your attitude in life, you wouldn't have a care about yourself. You wouldn't have a care about others. So, you know, my training is in moral philosophy. So for me, it's all about how do we relate to ourselves and how do we relate to each other? But if you really did believe that, you know, meaning is not possible, then that would be to me an utterly devastating kind of conclusion. So, you know, I don't believe that there are objectives, meanings or values out there in the world that, you know, we discover by spelunking or, you know, excavating or anything like that, we create those meanings of values. We create them individually and we create them in concert with other people. And, And that to me is part of what it means to be a human being. We are meaning making and meaning seeking animals. I mean, that's, that's what we do. And we seek connection and we seek belonging. And I I think that one of the ways that I understand addiction as is, as a kind of losing yourself. So the philosopher Kierkegaard, another one of my favorites, a melancholic Dane in the um, mid 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. I love him. That for me, he talks about the ways in which you can lose $5 and you'd still be ticked off about it, you know, 10 hours later, like, where's that $5 bill? I know it's here somewhere. You could, you can lose a good friend. You could lose a wife. He said, you could lose, I think he said, you could lose a leg and you'd notice it. He said, but the greatest hazard of all losing yourself is what you don't notice. And I think you lose yourself when you lose sight of or feel as if you are no longer able to make meaning and value of your life. And so I think that, you know, addiction is one form of a person losing him, her, or themselves, And that means that they've lost, they've lost hope and they've lost kind of the willingness to try to make meaning and value. Does that make sense? A thousand percent. And as a matter of fact, I would kind of maybe take that a step further and say that, well, I've been saying this for a while. And quite frankly, this is the, the whole basis of this podcast, quite frankly, started about nine months ago with my friend is that I've been lonely, pandemic loneliness. We all have felt this to a certain degree or a large degree. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've been saying so long, you're experiencing a pandemic of disconnection that is getting worse in this country. Worse, 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 clearly. So that pandemic of disconnection is keeping, I promise you, and you know this, that out of the pandemic, that addiction rates have and will continue, I think, to skyrocket the more disconnected we become. Because the antidote of 
in my opinion, and this is something else I heard, that the antidote of addiction is connection. I think in yeah, a lot of ways. That, that, yeah, and and I think you see that in some of the research into addiction. Say that Bruce Alexander does. You know, he had the yeah. the um, the rat park experiments yes. that when you yep. isolate rats and yep. you know there, there's no kind of good rewards. There's no connection. They're going to be miserable. They're going to be hitting their little paws to get the sugar water or the cocaine laced water or whatever. When you build a, when you build an environment where connections can be made and they can be strengthened and people can kind of thrive on that social level that you see less of that sort of behavior. So, I mean, there's absolutely something that's right there. I mean, I think that, I think, you know, his, his theory is called the, the dislocation theory of addiction. When people become dislocated from other people. And for me, I always want to talk about the ways that you can become dislocated from your own self. I mean, I think we can become, each of us can become a stranger to him, her, or themselves, that we can lose ourselves in those kind of ways. And, and that's to me, what is, well, I think very philosophically interesting, but I think it's interesting because I don't think it quite gets the same kind of attention in, in airplay. I mean, I know we talk about addiction as a biopsychosocial condition. You know, I don't use the disease language. I'll call it a, a condition, a limiting condition, but I, I don't think we always pay quite as much attention to the meaning that people make of those experiences. Yeah, talk deep, a bit about the dislocation. You know, I think we're talking about the same thing. So I agree with you. I know exactly what this means, the dislocation from self. But the problem is, in my, I think maybe in Hana people's, I didn't know that there was anything that I was, well, that's, I guess, really in James's point. I didn't know that there was anything to lose in the first place. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's part of it. And I think, you know, in talking about trauma, for example, you know, it's, it's no surprise why people who are traumatized in various ways or who have experienced those adverse childhood experiences, you know, those ACE, ACE I'm saying this to the therapist, you know, the ACEs test, yeah. that people who suffer trauma in some ways, depending upon their age, may not fully develop a self that they then turn around and lose. I mean, I think with some of the earliest trauma that's perpetrated on young people, that it is so developmentally and morally significant that some people never get a chance to to form a self that is coherent, that is, you know, capable of inhabiting the world in a fully person kind of way. And, and I think it's not surprising that, that people who suffer those kinds of experiences are more prone to start using and then misusing and developing addictions to various substances and behaviors because there, there isn't a, a self there to resist those or to help generate alternative meanings and values, you know, a self that knows how to, to hope well and Correct. to who can imagine things and can maintain a kind of bodily self-position, self-possession. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this actually dovetails really well into some work that I did with... By the way, this podcast is unlike any other one I've done before. I'm so excited. I get to talk about Kierkegaard. For God's sake. Um, Kierkegaard, well. everyone's favorite melancholic thing. <laughs> Tuning out, like, Soren, out. <laughs> Gone. <laughs> I, I'm so... It, it, it's so interesting talking to you because um, it's kind of lighting up a lot of my, uh, my little brain here, parts of this recovery stuff. And 
when I, you know, I'll, I'll meet a new, uh, you know, I'll, I still go to meetings and try and meet the new person and all that. And I, I immediately want to try and get a connection with them because I know that's what they're lacking, but they don't know it. And that's, I think the biggest problem, you know, I, I didn't, I, when, when I walked into a room on December 23rd, 2010, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't want to connect with things, any of these people. They're nuts. They're alcoholics. I'm not that bad. Obviously, that was not the case. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always good to have that pool that you can point to and say, "But at least I'm not that." Until you find <laughs> exactly. out you are someone else's pool. Exactly. But I always tell my my uh, I always tell people I say, just look, you know, listen to the similarities because I guarantee you, you're going to walk into that room, you're going to hear somebody talking about burning down a car or holding up a liquor store at some point. You're going to go, "Oh my God, I am white collar. This is not me. I'm out." And I always tell them, just listen for the similarity because it's always there. It's I wanted to die or I wanted this to end. Every single time, that's what you're going to identify with. You may identify with the car burning down. You may or may not. But it's that commonality of meaning. It's that commonality, in fact, of language. Strangest thing happened to me about three days ago. I don't know that strange. I met some random guy who was working in my backyard. We end up talking and sort of some out of nowhere, he kind of says, well, I have eight years. And I said, oh, I have 12 years. And I took a step back about an hour later and I thought to myself, that's a common language, clearly, because if he said I have eight years in front of anybody else, they have no fucking clue what he was talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's that language that I love so much. And it's even the language of the, it's the language of bipolar. It's a language of, you know, of, of addiction or it's a language of domestic abuse or it's the language of language of language. And it's a commonality of the language that I love so much. Like the guy's even a Catholic. And I said, if I said the word homily to you, you would know what that means. Another person would have no idea. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's why, you know, one of the things that I love about Alcoholics Anonymous is that it has given us some shared language to articulate our experiences and some concepts that really are foundational and pivotal and life-saving for people to come to understand sort of what it is they've been doing and why they've been doing it. I mean, one of the wonderful things about, you know, being an AA or other kinds of mutual help groups is the way that we learn about ourselves by hearing the stories of others, right? So as you say, you see the similarities or you kind of read yourself into those stories and like, I didn't do that, but ooh, I did that. And, you know, so the the comparisons become not centered on trying to other these people. Well, those weirdos, and then there's normal me. But the other thing that I think is crucial is when I start to hear how others see me. So for example, you know, um, I was in and out of AA a, a lot of time. It didn't work for me, particularly not as a very young person. I was sober for nearly 20 years before I started going to AA. Oh. But I remember talking to a friend who was really struggling. She was about a year sober. And she said, it's really hard for me to see that I might be a role model to others, that other people look up to me because, you know, I'm such a screw up. And I said, it's really important to learn how others see us, you know, to see ourselves through the eyes of others, because we will learn so much because when we, you know, engage in introspection, when we look inside, we're not using a flat plane mirror. Half the time we've got the funhouse concave and convex mirrors where, you know, we think we know the absolute truths about ourselves, but it's other people who hold up mirrors to us. And how important is that in recovery? You know, how to, how to accept the fact that you may always have regarded yourself as so untrustworthy because you know, every 
you know, egregious offense you have committed against others in yourself. But then someone comes up to you and tells you that they really trust or value your opinion on something. You have to take that into consideration. And it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, what a gift. It certainly is. And, you know, I, I will say this too. I think my favorite thing about any 12-step program, but let's just take AA, for example, because I've done a lot of those, is that you get to learn to tell your story in three to five minutes. I think that is an incredible thing that a lot of people will overlook. And it's certainly important for me, because as I mentioned, I, I probably shared, let's say, easily once every other meeting, maybe once every third meeting, let's say. Regardless, I probably told my story in three to five minutes, sometimes for a longer share of 15, 500 times, right? And I learned how to do it at the beginning and middle and an end. And this is incredibly important, obviously, because once that timer goes off, you better sew that stuff up pretty fast. You know how that works. So you get to be able, and I don't say have to, you get to be able to tell your story in three to five minutes. That is incredibly important because you get to learn. First of all, I call it Toastmasters for drunks, right? You, yeah, yeah, that fits. That fits. Exactly, because you get to learn how to give your pitch, your speech, your share, whatever that is. And it's the storytelling part of it that fascinates me. And you said the word stories. That's what lit me up. I use storytelling therapy, not even narrative, quite frankly, but specifically how to tell a story, which from then you can extract meaning, right? Because mm -hmm. when you share in those three to five minutes, obviously there's a meaning that you are intentionally or unintentionally pulling out. Abandonment, fear, love, safety any of those archetypes that you know too well. If you do that enough, then you become a great storyteller and then you can become engaging and then you can, people can understand you better and then you can communicate and then you can uh, create connection and then you don't need the morphine lace drip anymore. Well, and I think it's interesting too, because I, I know, you know, in my shares that they're always different. I mean, they may revolve around some of the same themes, but I sometimes surprise myself in what I say, because I hadn't thought of it. And then suddenly there it is, you know, yep. thinking about it in a different kind of way. And I think, well, how fantastic is that? That this self-knowledge is always an ongoing process because we ourselves are always changing. So maybe what I thought was absolutely necessary for recovery in my first five years is radically different from what I need in my second five years. And so the idea that we need to keep a really proactive relationship to ourselves and not get complacent and think that we know everything there is to know about us, or, you know, I've told my story, here it is, or, you know, this is a done deal for me. That to me, I think is, is, is always worrisome. I never want to take anything for granted with that. It's, I know myself inside and out. Of course, I know myself quite well, but I always want to be able to surprise myself. I think that's one of the cool things that human beings can do. I think one of the coolest things human beings can do is be curious. People ask me sometimes, I say, what's the most important thing to be a therapist? And I say, well, there's a lot. You know, you got modalities and you got to have a good alliance and this and that. But I'm like, just be curious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, that's all you got to do. Curious and, be curious. And I think the other great virtue in Alcoholics Anonymous is a kind of shared humility. Uh -huh. So on the one hand, we're all in there equally, right? There, there are no professionals who are running our meetings. It, right. it gets a little dicey because the 12 step model is used in in and out patient treatments. That's yeah. a story for another day. Yeah. But in general, the idea is that a meeting is, is, is a, is a democratic kind of place where we are all 
equals and that we can learn from each other and that an old timer might say, I like hearing from new timers because I need to remember what it's like. And the new timers might say, you know, I need to um, see that this could be done. I need to hear these stories and think, well, my God, that guy was a hundred times worse than, than I ever was. So there's a kind of humility to be willing to learn from anyone who is in those rooms, to go back to a comment you said earlier, you know, we may come from all these different walks of life and not know each other. And we look for all the dissimilarities, like you're sitting next to, you know, a CEO of a fortune 500 company sitting next to someone who is working for their GAD, GED, right. that we're there equally. And to be able to say, I am going to be able to learn from someone who is so different from me. Mm. And if not in the context of these walls in these rooms, I might not never even acknowledge that someone like that exists. So that kind of humility, my sobriety, is it my sobriety in one sense? Yes. But in another sense, it's very much of a shared ongoing achievement by the people with whom I choose to be. And so I have a lot to learn from, from everyone whom I encounter in the rooms, out of the rooms, walking through yep. town and, and, and that's just, that's liberating because it, it must be exhausting to think that you always have to show yourself to be the smartest, the brightest, the most accomplished, you know, the flawless and all that. I would think that would be exhausting. And, and I say this to my students all the time. It's so great getting older because the list of things that I no longer give a rip about is getting longer and longer and longer. I'm comfortable with what I know. I'm comfortable with what I don't know or what I never want to know. Uh, gift, right? We get to do this. We do, don't we? We absolutely do. I will say this actually too. It, it, I, I got a real crash course in what you were talking about, that humility, because when I went to rehab, um, I was a executive vice president, blah, blah, of a major record company and high flying and all that. And um, some for some strange and wonderful, perhaps synchronous reason, I went to a rehab that was 70% prisoners because it was like a Prop 8 thing or Prop 36, I think. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So I got to meet a, I'm still friends with, by the way, a guy who did 20 years for a bank robbery. I'm still friends with a guy, a guy the Mongol bikers, not just the Hells Angels. Um, I knew a guy that did 20 years for a murder, you know, and like I sponsored these people for God's sakes. And my goodness, because when I walked in, I certainly had that attitude of like, I don't really don't belong here. I, I work with Neil Young, like, fuck, you know, no, stop. This guy, Johnny, the bank robber guy, 20 years, he knew more about life than I did. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we live in a society that is so stratified. I mean, I find going into AA rooms a relief to be in a space where all of those distinctions, most of those distinctions fall away. Yeah. You know, we're there. What, why are we there? Cause we got a common problem. Why are we here? Well, because we can help ourselves and help each other. You just boil it down to something so basic all the prestige, all the money, all the social capital, cultural capital does not matter. Right. Now, I, people ask me sometimes, I say, what's the meaning of life? <laughs> I'm at that stage now in my life. But sometimes people ask me that and I'll just say, help or help yourself so you can help others. Done. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, pretty I, much. I think at the end of the day. Yeah, you know, it was, obviously there's a lot more in there as well. Before we kind of close up shop, I did want to say one last thing about the storytelling thing in the rooms that, and, and you alluded to it, basically said it, which is when I was telling my stories, tell my story so many times, so many times, and again, sometimes 10 minutes, whatever. Sometimes it was the drinking thing. Sometimes it was the suicide of my wife and the drinking thing. There was a lot going on there. 
But the more I told the story, the more that all the detritus, all the lies and the bullshit that I told myself about the story started to kind of peel off mid-sentence sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. Because of refining the concept of my of, of the truth about what happened to me over and over again, unintentionally. I'll say something in the rooms like, you know, that partially may have been my fault with the suit. No, that's actually not true. I'm going to move on with that. That old thinking was done. That mm -hmm. was like five shares ago, two weeks ago. You know what I mean? So, I was yeah, finally well, good for you, though. You 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 made that matter. You you said this this has to have standing. This insight has to have standing. And you yeah. don't just, you know, knock it away. No. It matters. No, it's very AA saved my life in so many ways. It taught me the things that, frankly, if I hadn't got sober and really did the deal for two years prior to my wife's death, I would either be certainly drunk or most likely dead. Right. Yep. So that's when we say earlier, I'm a grateful alcoholic. I'm, a, I'm grateful for all the bullshit that I went through because I'm grateful for the recovery that it pointed me to. And I'm grateful for the recovery that I can now share with others. I know that we, we get to do this work. When we move from having to do this work in order to survive yes. to believing, wow, and I get to do this work, what an opportunity. I no longer have to drink anymore and I get to do this. So liberating. And you, you just are, hope that people who are early in recovery can can make it to that point. You are so correct. I'm actually taking a picture, which I will send to you later, of a tattoo I have on my arm, which says, I got it after the suicide. It says, I get to, colon, and then a line underneath it for that exact reason, right? Just to remind myself, I don't have to go get the, I don't have to go to work. I don't have to go to school. I don't have to talk to Peg O'Connor, right? I get to. Yeah. We get so, to do these things. With that in mind, I'm going to close up shop here. Here's how I like to do these things, okay? A little bit of acting involved. I know your philosophy, yes. brilliant woman and recovery. I need you to get your acting on for a heartbeat. You ready? Okay. Put your game face on. Here we go. I'm going to pretend to say goodbye. You're going to pretend to say goodbye. We're going to do a little fake hang up, and then we're going to chat for a couple of minutes post-interview. Uh, post, uh, Deal? Sounds good. Okay, I'm going to start getting, like, get that acting game on. Get that game. I'm putting on, let's say, uh, Robert De Niro right now. I'm going I'm going full bore, uh, full bore here. Um, no, I'm kidding. I really did have a wonderful time talking to you. My God. I don't get a chance to talk about Kierkegaard. I don't get a chance to talk about James. I have talked about Young a couple of times. But this is an incredible conversation. I really had a wonderful time with you. Your turn. Well, Jeff, I have had a wonderful time with you. I appreciate your questions. I appreciate what you're doing with this new chapter in your life. I appreciate the ways in which you see the ways that your addiction and your struggles have provided opportunities for you that maybe then provide opportunities for others. So thank you so much for what you do. Hooray for sober people. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to hang up with this absolutely brilliant professor. And uh, we're going to chat a little second earlier. Three, two, pretend, click, click. Click. <laughs>